Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 258, Lord Protector Somerset. Now, I promised you all that we would move on to the Protectorate in this episode, and so we shall, gentle listeners, so we shall. In the course of the next couple of episodes, I would dearly love you all to have a good idea of what you think about Edward Seymour, the Duke of Somerset, uncle to the boy king. But before I go on, I have a mate. This might be something of a surprise to some of you, and yet I do. This mate, whose name, by the way, is Pot, named after a tortoise, as it happens, says to me, he says, he says, he also has a friend. She's actually a little more surprising as it happens. Anyway, his friend is Posh, and apparently Seymour should not be pronounced Seymour at all. That it's one of those things like Ralph and Rafe, you know, squished if that's the technical term. So it should really be Seema. Any thoughts? Is this correct? Answers on a postcard. Anyway, sadly, despite my own personal poshness, I'm going to stick with Seymour, as in Biscuit. The good Duke, then. Well, was he, in fact? Good, I mean, as ancient tradition would have it. Or was he, in fact, as the more modern commentators would have it, the bad Duke? Or maybe he was just the Duke. Neither good nor bad, strong nor weak. As we mentioned a couple of episodes ago, he's in some ways an odd sort of chap for a 16th century gent and magnate. I mean, in many ways, he's jolly traditional. Building his empire, spending money like water to build himself a palace and big himself up, indulging in foreign wars, ruling the council with an imperious autocratic hand. But in other ways, he is most odd. He shows, as we will see next week, I have to tell you, a marked sympathy with a bunch of revolting peasants and yeomen and a most unfashionable reluctance to cut them into small pieces. So anyway, we will see. On the way, we will have a few themes, religion, war and revolt. Where have we heard of that before? 
a heady mixture. So, as we've seen, Somerset had some work to do just to finish off the grouting work around the tiles of his political supremacy. The tiles were all lined up, you know, and had those little, little plastic things in them, but he had to cover rottersly with a bit of sealant so that the water of opposition was excluded. There was still an irritatingly large amount of moisture in the air, with his brother Thomas whining and causing trouble, since Thomas hadn't been killed yet, unlike the fact that we did it last week. But once Rottersley was gone, Somerset did indeed have what he needed, the basic tools to exercise control, supremacy on the council, and governance of the young king. He therefore started acting, as though he was indeed in total control, which was to cause him problems. One interesting lens through which to view Somerset has been to emphasise that he was at heart a soldier, and he had the soldier's traditional lack of patience with the ambiguities of life, though I suspect war is full of ambiguities. So I suspect maybe that's just another stereotype, but hey-ho, go with it. You're looking at a direct, outspoken man, used to being in control and obeyed without question, to go straight at him, choosing the lesser of two weevils because Somerset began to immediately cause offence amongst the political neutrals by ignoring them. It would have been so much more politic to pretend he was still interested in their opinion. Here are three examples of why Somerset's boots appeared to be suddenly getting too small for him. Firstly, business started being conducted at Somerset's house rather than Westminster and the court. It's a bit like Cromwell Woolsey et al. All the climbers and hangers-on and folks desperately in need of a job were hanging around Somerset's door. So when the councillors turned up to work, they had to make do with three blokes who'd got lost, a rat catcher, a gong farmer, and Lord Paget's mum bringing in his packed lunch. I exaggerate for effect, of course, but you know, it was irksome to be a king's councillor and then to find that you're really on the sidelines. And anyway, more importantly, of course, the king was a miner. Decisions were legally supposed to be ratified and confirmed by the council. Somerset even stopped bothering getting the boy king's signature on occasion. That's number one, then. Secondly, Somerset forgot his place. Socially, darling. Oh, dear. It appeared that he did, in fact, consider himself sort of like a little king, really, and after all, he was the king's uncle. The best example of this was when he'd addressed a real king as brother. The real king we're talking about here is Francis, king of France, still alive at this point. Oh dear. As the offending letter was read out to the King of France, no doubt there were gasps around his court. A baby screamed. A whisper of sacred blue rustled around the room. A sharp little note travelled back to the French ambassador in England to the effect that only kings addressed other kings as brother and Somerset should be none too gently reminded of who he was, maybe accompanied by the judicious positioning of a boot around the knicker area. Somerset's arrogance was annoying people. And then thirdly, the Somerset House. Now, if you know London, you may know the neoclassical monstrosity that is Somerset House, built in the late 18th century, whose only real charm are the little squirty water fountainy things that my children used in doing their level best to develop pneumonia when they were little. Well, that Somerset House is built on a site created and first developed by our very own Lord Protector Duke of Somerset. To do that, he had to lay low a range of tenement buildings and chuck out the tenants, which, you know, is not something designed to make it popular. Plus, obviously, building massive new palaces costs a bob or two. But that was okay, because Somerset had arranged an annuity for himself of 8,000 quid a year. Now, 8,000 quid didn't quite buy you what it used to, 
but not far away, and it's the sort of sum that makes drinks go up the wrong way and out of people's noses. It was about 1.6 million a year sort of thing. He no longer had to worry about the monthly grocery bill. Let's just put it that way. OK, so Somerset was not making himself popular. Somerset, however, had something of the Pollyanna about him, was quite capable of blocking out bad news, and high on Somerset's agenda was the furthering of religious reform. Together with folks such as Cranmer in particular, as I've mentioned, the reformers knew what they wanted. In general, the strategy was to clear away the rubble of the old religion and build on the site a shiny new one. The detail was a deal more radical than we might imagine, those of us at least have been brought up in the Anglican tradition. What they wanted might encourage you to buy shares in whitewash-producing companies since it included the complete removal of icons and images in churches. They wanted to bring the altar into the heart of the church, a place of gathering, congregation and warmth, rather than mystery and distance. They wanted the removal of all those grand vestments that set the priest apart. Active participation, basically, was high on the agenda. Other things that were more familiar to Anglicans. The end of clerical celibacy. Celebrating communion in two kinds, both bread and wine, rather than just bread. And now, finally, the end of the Mass, the heart and most recognisable part of traditional practice. Cranmer was to be helped by the fact that the government was based in London rather than, let's say, I don't know, Bakewell. Clearly, if it had been based in Bakewell, the tarts would have been a lot better, but the people of London were the most advanced in the country in their demand for reformed religion. And so, around the council, a bottom-up demand for reform swept around the capital. Images were spontaneously smashed or removed. Hugh Latimer, the radical preacher who had been stripped of his bishopric in the conservative reaction of Henry VIII's later years, was free once more, and he shacked up with his pal Cranmer at Lambeth Palace. He passed his time thundering, as you do if you're a radical preacher. It is part of the radical preacher shtick, the idiom, as it were. He condemned the traditional prelates in their worldly, privileged and political finery, as he saw it anyway. Couched in courts, ruffling in their rents, dancing in their dominions, burdened with ambassages pampering of their paunches like a monk that maketh his jubilee, munching in their mangers and moiling in their gay manors and mansions. Go on, Latimer, you tell em, lad. Gotta love a nice alliteration or two. Derogatory phrases began to be used from the pulpit all across the city, like jack-in-the-box, for example. Now, I always thought a jack-in-the-box was a scary, clown-like thing that burst out of a box on a spring, went boing-oing-oing, the kind of thing used by child catches in horror movies and chitty-chitty-bang-bang. Apparently, in fact, the phrase is born around this time and is used to denote the consecrated host. The idea being that in the reformers' view, the bread and the wine were just that. There was no magical transubstantiation or even consubstantiation. The ceremony was an important remembrance, but no more than that. It came to acquire its child's toy and game meaning much later, probably from 1600, but more from the 18th century. The same applies to Round Robin, which I always thought was a sports league type of thing, for the very good reason that I've come last in so many of them. Well, no, originally it was an again an insulting term for the consecrated host. Well, who knew? Round Robin has more meanings than you can believe, actually, from sports to fish. But that's another example. The enthusiasts were strongest in London, but explicitly not just in London. 
There were examples all over the country. At Shrewsbury, for example, images of Our Lady, Mary Magdalene and St Chad were all gathered up from the churches and burned in the marketplace. Now, you would have thought this would have had Cranmer and Somerset skipping and dancing and hopping in the aisles, but you would be wrong to so think. No, what they wanted was a nice, even pace, below the radar. Reform, by salami slicing, a pace that would keep traditionists quiet until suddenly they woke up one day and said, hang on, I'm a Protestant. How did that happen? Also, the situation on the continent was not ideal. Emperor Charles had won a great victory over the Prots at Mühlberg and was in the process of imposing a settlement on all of them in Germany. A feature of Edward's reign would therefore be the stream of foreign divines fleeing for the sanctuary of England's relative toleration, a situation which will of course recur more than once in good old England's history. Now, the first response from Somerset was not to praise the London enthusiasts, but to try and bury them. Ordinances were issued punishments handed out. Nobody was burned, though, just saying. These London churches were breaking the rules, they said, steady as she goes. But while reassurance was making a prepared statement to the paparazzi at the front door, from the back door, Cranmer the Archbishop announced a visitation of all the churches. Now, on the face of it, this new visitation was simply a reprise of Thomas Cromwell's 1538 visitation. That meant that the commissioners would make sure everyone was abiding by the rules of the church. But the eagle-eyed would have noticed that the rules were very loosely drawn. To give you an idea, officially the commissioners would encourage the reading of the scriptures in the vernacular and criticise pilgrimages and the use of images only where the images appeared to be being worshipped rather than used, say, for education or a focus for devotions. So essentially, where the rules were being abused... But the wording meant that depending on the decision of the commissioner alone, all images could be ordered, removed and destroyed. And very often, this is in fact exactly what happened. It was also accompanied by a new book of homilies from Cranmer, all carefully chosen to point the reformist way. The visitations would spread the fire of iconoclasm, fan the flames of the reformed religion. But I'm getting ahead of myself again a little bit. The story then in 1547 was actually one of toleration, the repeal of the heresy laws that had stood for over a 100 years, as well as the more recent ones, public criticism of iconoclasm and undue radicalism, but locally, quiet but relentless pressure to reform and change. Now, some conservatives saw well enough where all this was leading. Some left for foreign climes, others were more dramatic. One priest actually leapt in despair from the spire of St Magnus Church by London Bridge, leapt into the Thames where he drowned. St Magnus, by the way, was literally at the place where London Bridge landed on the north side of the river. The bridge has moved since, as it happens, not very far, but just a little bit. Now, if you're in the area, you must go and see it. St Magnus the Martyr. It was rebuilt by Wren after the fire of 1666. And while I'm not a fan of Wren or the pomposity of the Baroque, In this case, I'll make an exception. It is a thing of beauty in its rich, dark wood and its white and gold livery. Also, there's a jolly good model of old London Bridge, by the by. Anyway, I digress. Other Conservatives, however, chose to fight. Notably, of course, Stephen Gardner, now firmly on the back foot. He wrote letter after letter to Somerset, howling about the homilies, visitations, the whole thing. He had a point, of course. Gardner was nothing if not razor-sharp. Henry's will, he said, had said no more change until Edward was of age, and he's not yet of age. 
he and his fellow Conservative, Edmund Bonner, the Bishop of London, found themselves in prison for their pains, though they were soon released, this time round anyway. Now, you might think this level of controversy and argument would be enough to keep your average protector busy, but not a bit of it. Somerset was a soldier, and it was to soldiering that he would go. Somerset had already been sent to make war on Scotland by his last master, Henry VIII. Following a popular theme in Anglo-Scottish wars, he'd been militarily successful, but failed to achieve the key objective. That objective was to force the Scots to follow through on the treaty they'd signed and then repudiated the marriage of Edward VI and the Queen of Scotland, Mary Queen of Scots, still just seven years old at this point. You might remember that Henry had promised to make sure that England and Scotland would be kept forever separate. The Scots had been unsurprisingly sceptical, and they still were. Somerset was determined to force the Scots to send Mary to the English court in advance of her marriage. And in August 1547, he set off with 16,000 men, supported by a fleet. This then is the continuation of the conflict known as the Rough Wooing, and it's admittedly the kind of wooing that only William the Conqueror would really have approved of. It's interesting to note that there was a pro-English faction in Scotland that supported Somerset and this move. And also, this is a thread that will run through the century. Religious reform in particular was a consistently shared objective for parts of the communities of both English and Scots. For some Scots, the English invasion offered an opportunity to spread the cause of reform. However, as Somerset approached Edinburgh, he came across the opinion of the vast majority of Scots in the form of the Scottish earls of Arran and Angus, who had assembled a much bigger force to kick them out, maybe even twice as large as Somerset's army. The resulting battle was to be known as the Battle of Pinky Clough. There's some debate about the way to position the battle that follows. There is scorn pouring that describes Somerset's army as a good old traditional English medieval army composed of archers and billmen. But others present it as the first Renaissance English army. The truth is that, as for Henry's army of 1545 in France, it's a bit of both. Many of these soldiers had been raised by the traditional method of the county levies, and so there were large contingents of archers and billmen for sure, but there were also German mercenary pikemen and arquebuses in bona fide Renaissance fashion, and there was a large, well-prepared artillery train that would be crucial. The truth is that England had learned from European influences, but despite Henry's reforms, were nowhere near the level of sophistication of French and imperial armies. Somerset's army represents something halfway. Anyway, Arran had drawn up the Scots in a superb position across the River Esk, across from Somerset's army. All he had to do was to wait and let the English impale themselves on him. Except life was no longer so simple. With excellent artillery, Somerset could pulverise them on their hill. And maybe this is why the Scots abandoned said hill, or it's possible that Aaron thought Somerset's artillery movements suggested some kind of retreat and thought it was time to give him a good kicking. Whatever, they swapped the safety of the hill for attack. They would find out that attack does not always form the best defence because it did not turn out well. Although the advancing Scottish pikemen saw off English cavalry, the English artillery did indeed pulverise. At one point, the commander Aaron decided he was being betrayed and the yell of treason went up, which understandably didn't help Scottish morale, confidence and cohesion. Under the pressure, the Scots split and ran in three main directions. To spay the details, 
probably six to ten thousand of them died. It was as conclusive an English victory as you could wish for. Somerset redoubled his demands to Mary of Guise to give up her daughter Mary, since Mary of Guise was now effectively ruler of Scotland. But the Scots, as always, were not finished yet. Somerset now set up garrisons in southern Scotland, and Edinburgh was laid under siege by John Dudley, the Earl of Warwick. And yet, at the end of the campaigning season, with brother Thomas Seymour causing trouble with the young king and a parliament to run, Somerset would have to wait until the following year to finish the job, and down south he returned. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. When he arrived back home, he found a 10-year-old king who was absolutely over the moon with his victory. And maybe we should turn to Edward here to find out what sort of boy he had become. Now, I know what you're going to say, that Edward VI was a sickly sort of lad. And I confess, I have always had this kind of gormongasty image of a sniffly sort of child, pale, shuffling through grand halls with a sinusy voice, whining away and poring over dry, dusty books while his chumps ran and played outside in the sun and periodically gave each other a thoroughly good beating, as all good children should. I found myself exaggerating for effect again. I really must apologise, but you know what I mean, hopefully. Well, as far as we can tell, Edward was normal and active, with a love of the hunt, and who would enthusiastically play in the tilt yard at running at the ring or Quinton, and properly revelled in the joy of an English victory over the Scots. Here's the Venetian ambassador, admittedly a little later than this, but you know the principle is the same. Edward, he said, was taught to ride and handle his weapons, and to go through other similar exercises, so that his majesty soon commenced arming and tilting, managing horses and delighting in every sort of exercise, drawing the bow, playing rackets, hunting indefatigably. It is a description that could have been made of many others, including his dad, and worth noting that Edward was also a ginger top like his dear papa. There's a terribly famous picture of him where the redness of his hair is evident and where he is sporting the power stance. A stance made famous by his dad, picked up by some actors patronised by Edmund Blackadder, butler to the Prince Regent, and then extravagantly revived in the 21st century by a British Chancellor of the Exchequer and a Home Secretary. Oddly, though, the sickly reputation was clearly also a contemporary thing. In 1548, the French ambassador met Edward and had a companionable conversation in Latin, as you do, and he wrote that Edward seemed to be in good health, and expressed his own surprise that anyone would think him sickly. So not only was Edward far from being sickly, but it appears he was turning out to be one of the sharper knives in the drawer as well. One of the most important things the reformers managed to achieve in the days of the old king, particularly through the good offices of Catherine Parr, was to get the right tutors assigned to the young king to help form his mind. Particularly important in this was John Cheek, Regius Professor of Greek at Cambridge, and in practice, Cheek became Edward's chief teacher, although his official tutor was a man called Richard Cox. 
Alongside him was Roger Ascham, who was Princess Elizabeth's tutor, and Anthony Cook, a humanist scholar. The traditional rubric is that these men were committed evangelical reformers, though some doubt has been cast over to what extent they were. But as a Cambridge man, Cheek, for example, came from a university that had acquired a reputation for the new religion, as opposed to the much more traditionalist Oxford. You might note John Cheek's quality from the phrase attributed, mm, slightly dodgily, I think, to Edward. Randolph the German spoke honestly, Sir John Cheek talked merrily, Dr Cox solidly, and Dr Anthony Cook weighingly. The proof of the pudding, though, is in the eating, and what emerged from the King's education was a young man precocious in learning with a good grasp of Latin and Greek and modern languages, with the ability to write well-structured arguments that drew on the ancients in the approved manner of the new learning, and that very clearly favoured the new religion too, an impulse that would only get more powerful as time went by. To Cranmer's delight, it does indeed appear that Edward took seriously the desire to be a new Josiah. With horror, the imperial ambassador would report, In the court there is no bishop, and no man of learning so ready to argue in support of the new doctrine as the king, according to what his masters tell him, and he learns from his preachers. It's a very odd world and situation, though. Of course, like any young king, Edward was constantly surrounded by companions, and however young he was, everyone was hypersensitively aware that this lad was a king, whose will was sovereign over his people. On the other hand, he was young and needed to spend plenty of time learning ancient Greek rather than running around like a blue-ass fly, which is what the vast majority of small children like to do. So he needed to be ordered around and disciplined. The educational philosophy of the day had very little to do with child-centred learning and the development of soft skills in a supportive, safe environment, and much more to do with challenge in the back of the hand. I exaggerate for a gag, of course. Very few of us can have had an education as fine as Edward's from the finest minds of his day. Nonetheless, the point I'm trying to make is how to keep the sovereign lord's nose to the grindstone. I would not be happy in 1548 of larruping a young king who might revisit said larruping in future years. And so you get the tradition of the whipping boy. Now, the whipping boy is an idea I had frankly assumed fell into the category of historical analytical techniques known as piffle. A story for the pub. And indeed, I believe some historians do still consign the idea of a whipping boy to the piffle draw. However, with Edward VI, we seem to have an example. So, Thomas Seymour's familiarity with the boy and his attempt to ingratiate himself appeared to lead to the development of the use of swear words by the young king, eager to correct this certainly heinous crime. A lad called Barnaby Fitzpatrick was wheeled in, and Edward was made to watch while he was given a sound thrashing for Edward's swearing. So there we go. Famously, Charles I was supposed to have had a whipping boy called William Murray. The historian John Guy notes, however, that Richard Cox writes of thrashing Edward with a rod, so who knows but then maybe the two stories are not incompatible. There, anyway, true or not, is the origin of the phrase whipping boy. Don't try this at home. The relationship between Somerset and his young charge is difficult to know. As far as Edward's journal is concerned, there is little to be revealed of either great affection or antipathy. The impression, such as there is, is a rather cold, formal relationship, not a bad relationship, but we're not talking Melbourne and the young Victoria either. 
By the time Somerset arrived home from Scotland, the wave of iconoclasm was growing still further, images being smashed, medieval wall paintings being whitewashed and replaced with the words of the Bible, the religion of the image, the religion of the word again. Organs were silenced because the music of the old church was but roaring, howling, whistling, mumming, conjuring and juggling and the playing at organs, a foolish vanity. My brother tried to learn the organ once. If only I had known of this quote at this time. Oh, the missed opportunities of life. Up the reformers I might have cheered. Debate and argument between the old and the new were everywhere. There was even one rather delightful report about a school where the children divided themselves up into two teams. One called themselves the new religion and the other called themselves the old religion. And they all had a good go at each other. The triumph of being young, all the extraneous verbiage and fluff stripped away back to basics. By November 1547, Somerset was then deep into his first Parliament. The Parliament continued that strategy of trying to keep the lid on the most obvious flashpoints. One of the first acts of the Parliament was to make proclamations against unauthorised folks dissing the sacrament of the Mass. The title of the Act is pretty clear. Here we go. Act against revilers of the sacraments and for the communion in both kinds. Stop, said Parliament. Henry and his church told us what to believe. Stick to that, would you? But look, what they meant was, go on, yay, way to go, more, more. I think the phrase is mixed messages. Generally speaking, however, this Somerset's Parliament sought to spread the sense of a new start, a release from the darkening suspicions of the previous reign, and was notable for the wave of acts designed to take some of the heat out of public life, as I believe I've mentioned previously. The Act of Six Articles, with its nasty penalties for heretics, was repealed. But not only that, the old 1414 Act against heresy was also repealed. A new Treason Act was passed to undo some of the extremes of Cromwell's 1534 Act. Amongst all of this was a much less liberal measure. The 1547 Vagrancy Act is a startling reminder of the economic and social dislocation going on in the countryside. So look, get this. The act produced by a parliament under the good duke. In this act, vagrants who persist in their vagrancy can be made into slaves for two years. And it's pretty explicit what you can do with the slaves. Branding, whipping, chaining and all. It has to be said the act doesn't last very long. Good sense soon reasserted itself. And in 1550, the previous act of 1531, that's Thomas Cromwell's act, is reinstated. And once again, the poor laws are in force that recognise that the vagrant poor need to be helped by giving them employment. So, look at me now, those of you who insist Cromwell was nothing more than a brutal enforcery bloke. Just to recover my impartiality after the snidey good duke crack, we need to consider context here. We know that the vagabonds desperately roaming the lanes of England looking for work and food were the result of population growth in an inflexible economy that could just not offer the extra work needed. Inflation was at its height. Between 1540 and 1547, prices rose by 46%. In 1549, they were to rise a further 11%. In desperation, people had no choice but to leave their villages and went to look for work. But as far as the rest of society was concerned, they were willfully breaking the social mores and rules of the day. They should stay to be looked after in their own parish. And their willful flouting of the rules was very likely to lead to violence and social unrest. And for the good of society, they must be stopped. 
the Vagrancy Act was not the good Duke's own act, though presumably he could have tried to stop it. As we'll see, the sympathy that Somerset would show would be to those who tried to play by the rules. The 1547 Act is a mark of just how much Tudor society feared social unrest, which fear was soon to be made real. We might also note that as early as this, some of Somerset's friends and supporters were warning him of potential trouble. William Paget, in particular pressed Somerset to be firm, to set his face hard against any leniency with these folks. He was to repeat his words before long, along with the I told you so bit. In December 1547, a new Chantres Act was also passed by the Parliament, which was pretty much the last major dividend to be had in the great project to reduce the excessive wealth of the church. It's worth restating, by the way, why Cranmer and the reformers felt that Chantres should be removed. These are the chapels paid for by the money of the faithful to have prayers said for them after their death, to speed them through purgatory. Of course, as far as the reformers were concerned, the very idea of purgatory and the intervention of prayers was unscriptural and a contrick. It was already written who was saved and who was not, and as Luther said, you just don't bargain with God. So, the chanters were illogical, and they were just there to take money from the innocent for the benefit of a vast vested interest called the church. The removal of the chanters liberated many. It also removed a connection between the living and their ancestors that had been part of the weft and warp of daily life for centuries and removed a source of comfort for many as well. There are always two sides to every story, essentially. About 2,500 chapels were wound up through the Court of Augmentations. Priests were compensated, goods, fabric and land sold off. The dividend from this enormous vested interest was supposed to go towards the enrichment of the nation, to education in particular. Instead, the massive £600,000 recovered from the process went into the pocket of another enormous vested interest, the gentry and nobility of England, who had agreed to the change. Specifically, much of it also went to finance Somerset's war in Scotland. The promises of the bill to spend the money wisely were once more nothing more than fluff and vapour. Cranmer and the evangelicals were livid and would accuse the government of failing their people with some justice. There's an interesting little side note. There arose a tradition in England that the Reformation led to the establishment of a whole range of new schools and that we can see this by the number of Edward VI schools. Now, we now know that most of the money from the dissolution went into the pockets of the state and the gentry and many assume it was therefore spent on fripperies like gaudy palaces, nice bonnets and embroidered codpieces. Much of it probably did. But in the end, much of it did end up enriching the wider nation through foundations of schools. The number of grammar schools increased from 217 to 272 in the course of the reign. It appears there is more than one way to skin a cat. But again, please don't try this at home. There's another interesting side note to the Parliament. How many interesting side notes can one episode have? One of the bills Somerset tried to push through related to his own authority, basically saying that Somerset would have governorship of Edward not until at his defined age of 18, but just until he, Edward, decided that it should be so. Seems fine and quite liberal. His brother Seymour, though, objected fiercely because he, Thomas Seymour, wanted to become the king's governor. And so Thomas Seymour tried to use his influence with Edward, the friendship he'd built up with him. 
He introduced a bill into Parliament making he himself governor of the king and then tried to get Edward to sign it. The ten-year-old lad could smell something strange. Oddly, the bill that Seymour put in front of him seemed to be smelling vaguely of haddock. Or was that kipper? Definitely something fishy anyway. He resisted. He wanted the council to sign it first before he would, but Seymour demanded he sign it right now, immediately. Edward would not be bullied. He insisted Seymour leave him and later took John Cheek's opinion, who put him straight. Edward appears to have been no pushover, young though he might be. Let us finish this instalment of the Protectorate with the story of the rough wooing. In January, Somerset decided there should be more carrot, given that the stick had been applied to Scotland with impressive force and vigour. So, in January 1548, he issued a letter to the Scottish people, pleading for a bond of common interests, united together in one language, in one island. And as he said, proposing that the old names of Scotland and England be abolished in favour of one united Britain. It was a brave effort, of course, and very probably Somerset himself believed it, but marriage at the end of a sword was unsurprisingly unattractive to most of the people at the pointy end of it. The cost of the garrisons in the lowlands now was sucking money from the already impoverished English treasury, particularly a main base of 2,500 soldiers held at Haddington, which is a town in Lothian, just to the east of Edinburgh, but Somerset was determined to pursue the marriage of Mary and Edward and convinced the benefits of the idea would eventually convert the Scots. So, it was something of a shock when the news reached him that Mary, Queen of Scots, had been betrothed to the Dauphin of France, Francis. Mary herself was already showing some of that character that would mark her extraordinary life. It would be reported when she was ten that her spirit was already so high and noble that she would make great demonstration of displeasure at seeing herself degradingly treated. This, though, was to be reported from France, because in 1548, that's where Mary was sent, away from English grasp, to live at the French court. It's a rather simple and really rather brilliant move. It brought French military aid, and a French force duly arrived on Scottish soil, which led to on-off military encounters around the English base at Haddington. But mainly, it just cut English policy off at the knees. Sorry, she's not here. Oh, no, no, no. She's already engaged to be married. Didn't you know? So sorry. Didn't I mention it? I really should have said. So, that seems a good place to leave it. Next time, we shall meet one of the great objects of English history, which will be the most powerful and indeed beautiful unifying forces in England for hundreds of years. Betty can't guess what it is though the date maybe of 1549 will help some of you. And despite its power to unify, it will start in division. Let me also make a further plea to you all. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not choose this moment to sign up and become a member of the History of England? You will have a blast. And even if you hate it, you will be secure in the knowledge you've helped me in my labours to produce further episodes. All you need to do is go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and click on become a member oh and pay some money Mm. anyway thank you everyone for your comments and support and reviews and all that and for listening good luck everyone and have a great send night Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.